1: cleared of a look on the essay oh my gosh
0: they're all going against the wind it was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. Zencaster is a modern web based solution for high quality audio and video podcast production. With a full suite of professional tools, Zencaster allows podcasters to quickly and seamlessly record their guests remotely and produce their podcasts in studio quality. Check out the links in the show description to find out more.
1: I am George Knapp listening to That UFO Podcast and having one hell of a good time.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a very special That UFO podcast. In a huge year of news and progress in the world of UFOs, one name has made arguably one of the biggest impacts for years. His documentary, The UFO Phenomenon, and subsequent book, In Plain Sight, have rocked the foundations of the subject and added uh, a very valuable momentum to a growing cause. I'd like to introduce Ross Coulthart to the podcast. Ross, how are we? I'm very well. Good G'day. G'day to all your listeners. Yeah, uh, good day. It's that Australian twang you've got. And j- can I just say off the bat, Ross, uh, so many people asked me to either get Ross to do one of his accents when he comes on the podcast from your <laughs> audio book reading or, or or let him swear. So I was like, yeah, he's Australian, so I'm sure it will drop in at some point.
1: I, I think I owe Tom DeLonge a personal apology, to be honest, because when I um, when I was doing the audio for the book, I uh, we did a uh, audio book and uh, I was asked to read it and uh, I had so much fun because I turned t- Tom DeLong I think into a twelve year old boy, a very excitable twelve year old boy and uh, uh, I, I I'd love to meet him one day and shake his hand and apologise frankly my American accents are atrocious.
0: <laughs> I, I I don't think that's a terribly inaccurate interpretation of Tom DeLong being a, a exciting twelve year old <laughs> boy because he never really had. <laughs> he, he never, in the best way possible, he's never really grown up since he's blink-182 days And I think that's what endears him to a lot of people uh, But yeah, your, your accents went down a storm from the amount of listeners who got in touch with me as well So that was something that was very much appreciated in the, the audiobook world for those who listen. Listen Ross, you have done many, many interviews before this And you've got a whole load more to do afterwards as well Something that the listeners for this podcast particularly were very keen on was hearing something a little bit different or hearing some follow-ups from you as well. So hopefully we've managed to do that within the body of the interview to keep things a little bit fresh. The book itself, Ross, in plain sight, has been released now in in how many countries?
1: Um, It's uh, the US, Canada,
0: Australia, New Zealand, uh, and Europe, UK, Europe. And how have you taken the reception to the book yourself? Is it what you expected? (laughs) Look, I've been pleasantly overwhelmed.
1: To be perfectly honest, I, I I I wrote the book pretty much as a primer for my own inquisitiveness. I, I you know I, I I asked the questions that I thought anybody should ask. And it was really funny because I had a bit of a panic when I'd finally sent it off to the publisher because I thought, look, it's not really saying anything that hasn't been said already. And and frankly, I I feel that. You know, a lot of the stories that i focused on are stories that have already been well told by some very good people in UFO research. But I guess what I did was I concentrated my skill set, my journalistic inquisitiveness on the... uh, On the subject matter, and uh, I I, I guess I focused on what I thought was significant. And uh, I think people have actually said to me that it's saying something different, which I'm quite heartened by, to be honest. I I didn't uh, really think that that was the case, but um, uh, I can tell you that the volume of the response has just been completely overwhelming. I every day I log on to my email server, and there's another hundred and fifty emails and messages on social media, and uh, I, I just, I've just i moved house in recent months, and uh, I'm dealing with literally uh, unpacking boxes and putting things on shelves, and the, uh, the pressures of dealing with that and dealing with um, answering the incredibly uh, voluminous response that I've got from the audience is quite extraordinary. And if anything, I have to say, the responses that I've had have emboldened me to keep on digging.
0: Which is good and that's something a lot of people were asking about and we'll get to down the line. Can I just ask before we talk about the book, what was your interest in in UFOs or UAP, whatever you want to call them in your world, before you wrote the book?
1: I guess I was interested in the fact that as a journalist, I was repeatedly told we don't do stories on UFOs, that we don't cover this issue. And it intrigued me because... I hadn't really engaged with the subject matter that much. I'd done one story as a student journalist about the Kaikoura UFO story, um, uh, which happened in Christmas of 1978. That's how old I am. And I was a 16-year-old boy at that time. And uh, I followed that up for university in about 1981. And spoke to people who told me that there'd been a government cover-up. And I kind of chortled about that. But years later, when I finally got to meet John Cordy, who was one of the air traffic controllers from the New Zealand Kaikoura sighting, I was floored because there was a cover-up. There's absolutely indisputably a cover-up. I mean, no doubt about it at all. And the thing that really struck me was there was a cognitive dissonance between what I was being told as a journalist by popular media response, this kind of default response to ridicule, stigmatize, and treat with taboo the UFO phenomenon, uh, and just to treat it with derision. And yet, privately, I can remember there was a moment when I was working on a story with our Australian Air Force, and uh, I was in a room with very, very senior officers of the Australian Air Force, and we were in a mess having a beer at the end of a long day's filming. And one of them, after a few beers, basically said to me, look, can I ask, why don't, why don't you guys do stories about UFOs? And I said, well, because they're bullshit. you know. Nobody does stories about UFOs. And uh, he laughed and he said, no, they're not. And then he called over other people in the room, other officers who were flying officers who were pilots of jet aircraft, pilots of um, P3 Orion aircraft, and pretty much all of them had stories about anomalous objects that they'd seen. And I said to them, why why isn't this public information? And all of them talked about the fact that indeed inside the Air Force, there was also a taboo and a stigma attached to the subject matter of UFOs. It was like everybody was operating on an operant assumption that this was a subject that was to be ridiculed, but nobody could explain to me why it was being ridiculed. And that tweaked my journalistic curiosity. I'm I'm paid to dig. I'm paid to look for stories that people probably don't want told. And one of the first things I did was I looked at the American National Archives and the history of um, UFO research done by superb authors like Richard Dolan and um, Timothy Good in your country. And uh, it really blew me away because it was quite clear that there was a solid history sourced to solid real documents that showed that there was a phenomenon that officialdom couldn't explain, that uh, you know we weren't being given the whole story. And I guess all I've done, and that's why I'm pleasantly surprised at the level of response, all I've done is apply the same degree of objective testing of data to the story that I would do to any story. And it's funny because I did. I, I've had journo mates say to me, journalist mates have said to me, oh, mate, you're putting your career on the line. Your career is going to be fucking toast at the end of this if you if you do this story. And I go, look, I don't really care. I mean, I've, I did stories on bikey gangs once and people were telling me. I remember one bikey gang boss told me that he was going to chainsaw my head off, you know, and and ultimately – You just have to get on with it and tell the story and have faith that if you tell the story honorably and accurately and well, you'll get through. And I have a kind of a mystical belief as a journalist. I've been in the game for 35, 36 years. And I think stories have a life. And sometimes they want to be told. Every now and then I've put a story back on the shelf and I've closed it and gone, I'm going to come back to you in a few years' time when you're good and ready. And often those are stories that are incredibly sensitive and personally quite damaging and hurtful for the person that's telling them. And with UFOs, for years I'd kept on pulling that off the shelf. And for no good reason, I feel, executive producers and editors of TV programs and newspapers would say to me, Nah, Ross, we're not doing fucking UFO stories. They're all bullshit. And I'd go, why? And the weird thing about it was it all came to a head for me on the Australian 60 Minutes program where I was an investigative reporter in um, about 2015, 2016. And I heard Chris Mellon on an interview and Chris Mellon talked about the fact that as the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense... He was concerned that the United States government wasn't being as transparent as it could be about the UFO issue, about the UAP issue. And that really tweaked my interest. So I wrote a letter to him and he wrote back. and He said, yeah, sure, I'll do an interview. And then I went to my executive producer at 60 Minutes Australia and they said to me, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, we can do that story. We'll do an interview with this former very senior defense department official talking about UFOs. And then we were all set up to go to the States. And the day before, they bailed. And they came to me and they said, Look, I've made a call. I think we're just going to get ridiculed if we do this story. And I said, Why? I said, This is a very senior official of a defense department. They're saying it's real. They're saying the phenomenon is something that ought properly to be investigated. Why would we bail on it? And they couldn't really articulate why they didn't want it told. But I think ultimately they were fearful. As, a, as an editor, as an executive producer of a TV public affairs program, they were fearful that they wouldn't be taken seriously. And frankly, I think it's infantile that the media always takes the piss with UFO stories. Uh, because now that I know what I know, now that I've assessed the data and I've looked at all the evidence, I don't think there's any legitimate reason. Yes, there are some crazy people who make allegations that, you know, aren't true. But Sometimes I've been able to prove to my satisfaction that what they're telling me isn't true. But there are other people that I've spoken to along the way who are corroborated by independent data. They're verified by independent reports in government departments that I've dug out on freedom of information. And I think it's entirely valid as a journalist for me to investigate that. And I think you're going to find that people like me are going to start asking more questions as it becomes more and more obvious. And it became very obvious to me during my research, as it becomes more and more obvious that that there is a phenomenon here that is legitimate, that it's real, and it deserves to be investigated. And I think it's long overdue. I think the media has completely dropped the ball on this subject matter, and it's time we picked up the ball and ran with it and started doing some serious digging. I mean, you imagine. Imagine if, imagine if the investigative arms of all of the major newspapers started asking questions. Imagine if, for example, instead of letting it lie, when, say, as I write in my book, the leaked Democratic National Congress Committee, Democratic National Committee emails were sent to WikiLeaks and they were published on the web, the media ran with all of the emails about the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, you know, because frankly, I think it suited their political agenda. But when people in the media saw that John Podesta was being emailed by a rock star called Tom DeLong and they were talking with generals from the US Air Force about UFOs, why the hell didn't the media ask Hillary Clinton what this was all about? Why haven't... People asked those questions. And that's the question I found myself asking. When, when I was seeing for, for my own eyes the fact that there were documents, there were leaked documents that allowed us to glimpse into the DNC's emails and to show that the campaign manager for a presidential candidate, no less, in 2016 was having email exchanges with a guy pushing for UFO transparency. And moreover, that guy, Tom DeLong, had been going around doing interviews saying that he'd been told by, quote, the general that it was the Cold War and we found a life form and we recovered alien craft. Surely, it's time to start asking questions. And I, to this day, I shake my head. I just do not know. And I've had phone calls from some very famous journalists because I'm a, I'm a member of a group called ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And it's based in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, I've been in the room and met Woodward and Bernstein, the guys who broke Watergate and Seymour Hirsch, who broke the My Lai Massacre. And I'm talking to journalists at that level internationally. And a number of them have sought me out in recent months and said, hey, Roscoe, you're writing a book on UFOs? And I go, yeah. And I send them a copy of the documentary and they look at it and they all come back and they go, wow. And very few of them don't have stories about UFOs. Very few of them don't have a story where they've been told by a public official that this is legitimate. But ultimately, what's been holding them back is fear of ridicule, a taboo, a stigma. And little do they know, because as I discovered, that stigma, that ridicule was instigated by the US intelligence community in a deliberate disinformation campaign in the 1960s and the 1970s. That's what blew me away. That that the the history, the counterfactual history of what's really been going on is so at odds with the reality.
0: Let let me comment, Ross, on on something you said earlier about the the book, and you were surprised that you didn't think you were telling anything new. But when when an artist like uh Johnny Cash famously <laughs> covered Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, that was a song that had been out and, you know, had been done and people <laughs> loved it. But that song is now his because it's his interpretation and people resonate with that interpretation of the same piece of music. And I think that's what happens in this subject. And what happened with your book was people saw a story that had been been told before, but the way you put it together and what you added to it is what's hit the right notes with people. And I think that's what, what stuck
1: I'm so pleased to hear that. I mean, that's the best compliment you can pay any journalist. I mean, the thing you live for as a journalist is to be able to communicate a story that you've investigated and to get the facts across as objectively and as clearly as you see them. I mean, for example, one of the things I wrestled with when I was doing my documentary was, do I tell the story of alleged crash retrievals? And I agonized about it. To be honest, I was really nervous about it because even though I had – the former Director of Science and Technology Development from the US Navy, no less, Nat Kobitz, on the record, telling me that he was briefed into an alleged program which allegedly involved the retrieval of multiple non-human craft. Even though I had that kind of evidence, and I had other evidence that I'd seen from the New York Times with Dr. Eric Davis, and to a lesser degree, Senator Harry Reid, talking about briefings about objects not of this earth, technology not of this earth. I spoke to congressmen and their staffers who told me that there'd been confidential briefings in the Congress where they'd learned about craft, retrieved craft. I spoke to officials and scientists. Even then, I was still nervous about doing a story about a crash retrieval. And so I looked at doing Roswell, and then I thought, ah, everybody's done Roswell. It's kind of boring. You know, I'm kind of bored with Roswell because ultimately, at the end of it, I'm still sitting on the fence. I'm still not sure. And then I looked at the Aztec case, and I met Scott and Suzanne Ramsey and they sat me down and they showed me their evidence, and it blew me away. I mean, it was a methodical, thorough, rigorous piece of investigative journalism, and that's why I did the Aztec story. That's why I decided to at least give an airing to an allegation about a crash retrieval, and I'm, by golly, I'm glad I did because so much information's come in the door since. And then um, I agonised too about the connection asserting the connection between UFOs and nuclear weapons. Because I'd spoken to a lovely man whose book I recommend to you, Robert Hastings. His book, UFOs and Nukes, is just extraordinary. And it's, it's better than most investigative journalism that I've seen anywhere, frankly. It's a really thorough, methodical 40, 50 years of work where he's gone around America and the world and interviewed people who've had direct experiences with the phenomena in nuclear facilities. And he's just methodically recorded what their experiences were and asserts that there is a connection. And even when I spoke to him and when I spoke to Bob Salas, who had his missile shut down in 1967 in a Minuteman silo, I was still nervous about making the assertion. And you know what? It's really funny. I was waiting for some newspaper to attack me, and the only newspaper that's taken a swipe at me is a newspaper that doesn't like me very much because I've embarrassed them about something, and they just made some snide comment about how Ross Coulthard's career is is so in the doldrums that uh, he's now reduced to writing books on UFOs. And you know what? Fuck them. I don't care. You know, there's your swear word, by the way. Um, I really just don't care. You know, for the life of me, I I do not give a flying fuck if some twerp from a newspaper has a swipe at me because I'm investigating an issue that they think is to be ridiculed because they have no idea. They have no idea what I know. And I feel so privileged. I actually feel privileged to be drilling into this story at a time when the rest of the media isn't. Because they're missing out, frankly, but, the biggest bloody story I've ever worked on.
0: But let me ask you, in, in the recent uh, bill that's uh, come to light in the US, the NDAA bill, um, a few things are specified. Amongst them are biological effects, working with allies, and a suggestion of not necessarily recovered, crashed technology, but Discovered technology. Now we have heard hints and stories of possible discoveries made during archaeological digs from the the Tom DeLong and Peter Lavenda book "Secret Machines" and Bob Lazar. Famously, they tend to focus on areas around Crete or in the Middle East as locations for those discoveries. Have you heard anything that would back up those sorts of claims?
1: Uh, I haven't heard it for Crete or Greece, but yes, I have heard that a craft was recovered. Uh, from the Indian subcontinent. That's what I was told by somebody with a smirk from the intelligence community. And uh, I was told that it was taken as part of Operation Moondust to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And, uh, you know, bottom line is, I don't know if it's true or not, but I was gobsmacked to go through the CIA's library. And if you go into their online archive, and I've got the links to this in my book, you will find a document, in, feet, in fact, multiple documents that refer to Operation Moondust tracing and attempting to recover a flying saucer. That's the word they use, a craft that has been discovered in, I think, in one case in Nepal and in another case in a province of Afghanistan. And uh, just today I was having a conversation with an Indian UFO researcher who uh, uh, was filling me in on. What he knows about that incident. And, you know, frankly, the only reason that CIA archive has been declassified is because when Bill Clinton was the president, John Podesta made it very, very clear that as a senior policy advisor to the president, he thought the US government should be being more transparent about what it knows about the phenomenon. And I think he was persuaded to the notion that there has been. An official reluctance to release all that the US knows. And so it was under the Clinton administration that most of those CIA files were declassified in a huge swag. And what blew me away is whilst they've been reported before I looked at them, I actually read the the first time I looked at the one that talked about the craft in Afghanistan, I looked at it about 10 times thinking, is this... Is this a fake? You know, is this like an MJ-12 document that's been planted in a file or something? I was, and, and it just gobsmacked me that here in the CIA's archives, there was a document that asserted a craft retrieval, or at least an attempted craft retrieval. And when I spoke to, as journalists do, my anonymous sources in different sections of the US defense and intelligence community. I was amazed. I expected it to be quite difficult to get people to talk to me about this. But once people knew that they were speaking to me confidentially, and once they knew that I'd gone to enormous efforts to protect their identity by not using electronic means to communicate with them that could readily be bugged or tracked, they opened up and I was told And I'm cautious in saying this because people will immediately assume that I'm saying it's true. I don't know it's true because there's always the risk of a disinformation program. There's always the risk that what this is is another Richard Doty plant trying to mislead a journalist. This has happened countless times before. But I was told that, yes, there is a program. There is an active, ongoing program where the US government has recovered craft. And indeed, one of the things I worked through was the historical documents of Wilbert Smith, the Canadian researcher, and his communications with a guy called Robert Sabacha who was on the scientific advisory committee for the Manhattan Project and then allegedly later on worked for this secret group that was essentially trying to back-engineer craft that had been recovered. And he told... Researchers that he didn't understand why this was being kept confidential, but he acknowledged its reality. Now, there comes a time where, as a journalist, you go through different levels of proof, and okay, there's an allegation. So, prima facie, there's an allegation, say that X murdered Y. Then you get to a kind of a civil level where you think, you know, beyond a balance of probabilities, on a balance of probabilities, it's probably the case that X murdered Y. And then you get to a criminal burden where you think beyond reasonable doubt, X murdered Y. Well, I'm on, the, I'm on the civil burden at the moment. I think it's on the balance of probabilities more likely than not that the United States government is lying through its teeth when it says that it hasn't recovered ET craft. And it's really interesting because the only president that has ever said that is Barack Obama. And they did it under enormous pressure, if you remember. There was a petition which was put to the White House, and I think the President's office, in order to get the media off their back, referred it to the scientific advisor for the President. And probably without the authorization or the supervision too closely of the President, a press release was put out by the science advisor, which basically asserted definitively that as far as the White House was aware, there is no evidence of extraterrestrial visitations to the planet Earth, and there's certainly no evidence, I think, of recoveries of alien spacecraft. So it poo-pooed the whole Roswell story as a myth and an untrue myth at that. I'm not so sure anymore. And I think we should be asking that question. And for me as a journalist, that was a huge turning point. And and the best way I can express this is to say that journalists always have 10 times as many sources for the sources that they quote publicly. And so I'm making no secret of the fact that when Nat Kobitz went on the record with me and said, yes, you can quote me, I was briefed into a UFO retrieval program. He introduced me to people. He put me on to people that he knew inside the defense, science, military infrastructure And those people spoke to me because Nat recommended that I do. And they've trusted me with their information. And I think there's something to it. I don't know for sure. Are you asking me? Is there a a TR3B or whatever it is jacked up on blocks in a cave somewhere in Area 51? I don't bloody know. But I strongly suspect there is.
0: Now, listen, you talked about stigma and one of the arguments people will always use in this conversation about UFOs is if these craft are so technologically superior as they would appear to be, how can they, how can they crash? So in your findings and your research, have you forged any opinion as to why they may, one, crash or two, be left here?
1: Well, you're using the word crash, and I guess I did use the word crash with the Aztec incident. But I'm not persuaded that they're all crashes. Edgar Mitchell, and this is something I'm telling you for the first time, Edgar Mitchell told my source, the spaceman, who was one of his closest friends, that he understood that a fully functioning craft was found literally with the lights on and the door open, and the US military recovered it off the Mexican military under gunpoint. And took it back to the United States off Mexican soil. And that was a story that Edgar Mitchell told my friend, the spaceman. Now, I don't know if it's true or not, but I don't think Edgar Mitchell had lost his marbles even by his late time in life. And he was utterly convinced that there had been multiple craft retrievals. And he told this to his friend, and indeed, he told it to multiple friends. So When you have one of the most respected astronauts, one of the greatest American heroes of recent times, defying the United States government and accusing the US government of a cover-up, of a conspiracy to conceal information, one of the other things he told his mate was he, as you probably know, lived just down the road as a little boy in Roswell. He loved that story, Edgar Mitchell, that his family in the 19th century within the last 100 years, had traveled by horse and cart across America to live in the west of America. And here he was within that 100 years doing a moon mission as an astronaut walking on the moon. Uh, Incredible stuff. Very, very wise, very, very spiritual, very, very sincere, honest man. And he went back with the spaceman to the Roswell Arteria area, and he introduced the spaceman to people that he knew. And Edgar told the spaceman that he had been shown material that was recovered from the Roswell crash, material that was quite clearly not human technology. Now, I don't know what happened at Roswell. I've got no idea. But it's quite obvious to me that the United States Air Force is lying through its teeth. And one of the things that's been emphasized to me by multiple sources is craft were found archaeologically. They were found in apparent crash incidents. And more importantly, they were also found as if they'd been left on purpose for us to find now i can't explain that i don't know why that would be the case but why would multiple people tell me this from within the defence intelligence hierarchy of the us government you know what what's to be gained by briefing Brother. a journalist
0: Ross, were there any guesses from any of these people at any point or or summations as to why these things had been left?
1: No, it's all speculation. Um, I'll tell you what, though, without going into too much detail, my inclination increasingly is to follow the Jacques Vallée line and say that I don't think the extraterrestrial hypothesis fits What we're talking about here. It doesn't make sense to me. In fact, the more I look at this, the more I am drawn to the notion that this is future human. And I know that sounds mind boggling, but let's summarize what we do know. What we do know is that there is anomalous technology, And I don't give a rat's ass what the skeptics say. It is technology. It's not weather balloons. It's not weather phenomena. It's not misidentified aircraft. It's a technology. It's way beyond known terrestrial technology. As the five observables say, it's hypersonic. It's capable of maneuvers that are incredible, turning right angle turns on the point of a dime. it appears to have stealth capacities. It appears to be able to penetrate solid surfaces. It appears to to be able to manipulate human perception and consciousness. This is weird shit. And it's real. And and there are documents and sources that substantiate the reality of this phenomenon. So let's let's start from a base of acknowledging that. What we are talking about here is something that is inexplicable by known human technology. I know some people are still clinging by their fingernails to the notion that this might be some black American project, that it might be a a TR3B or an Aurora that was developed 30 or 40 years ago. And who knows? That may be the case. But I don't think the US built it. I don't think they conceived it. I don't think if if they have cracked anti-gravity, I don't think they did it by themselves. I think there's a strong possibility they have, but somebody's given them a cosmic shove. And so if it is future human, let's just postulate for a moment. Why would future humans suddenly start taking a much more active interest in humanity around about 1947 over an area of New Mexico and Nevada where we oh just so happened to be testing nuclear weapons. And why is it, and I commend again, Robert Hastings excellent book to everybody, UFOs and Nukes. Why is it that almost every single ICBM facility in the United States has been visited by these objects? It's in encounters with this phenomena. Why is that happening? It is an irrefutable connection. And so, If you extrapolate from that, is it inconceivable that future humanity might be trying to warn us about the dangers of what we're doing, playing with matches? Because that's what Edgar Mitchell told his friend. Edgar Mitchell said they're worried about the kiddies playing with matches. It's as simple as that.
0: Now, Ross, in the acknowledgement of your book, you thanked Bob Greenyer of the Martin Fleischman Memorial Institute. And he is doing some extremely interesting work there on monopoles, EVOs and ball lightning. And ball lightning has many of those signatures that you, you talked about, potentially, if we forget ET technology, and this is some anomalous technology. Did you speak to him about those sorts of things? And what did you take away from his work?
1: I did talk to Bob and I've spoken to other people who also have as equally a commanding knowledge of physics, particularly quantum physics and particularly the EVO technology. I'm also fascinated with the burgeoning group of entities such as um, Andrea Rossi, um, the Sapphire Project uh Uh, which appear to be claiming that they are capable of producing more energy out than in. And they're doing this essentially by the same phenomena. Essentially it's a contained plasma and it all goes back to the EVO phenomena. And it also all goes back to a guy called Kenneth Shoulders, whose work you can look at on YouTube, uh, who postulated exactly what these companies are now talking about. And I know it's roundly discredited because essentially Martin Fleischmann, to whom the Martin Fleischmann Memorial Project is dedicated, was of course one of the two people, Pons Fleischman, who postulated cold fusion back in uh, the 1980s and were roundly hounded and discredited for making the assertions that they were generating energy in a cold fusion process. Ironic then that periodically, just for a brief moment about a year ago, NASA published a paper asserting a possible breakthrough in cold fusion, and then it just disappeared. And all around the world, if you look at the scientific literature, there is quite a body of work to show that there really is something to this EVO technology. And I think the company that's coming the closest, I'm taking a really close interest in them, is the Sapphire Project, S-A-F-I-R-E, Sierra Alpha Foxtrot India Romeo Echo Sapphire. And uh, if you look up the Sapphire Project, they've got extraordinary claims. They've even claimed in one interview that they had a mild anti-gravitic effect on the tip of the conductor that they were using during the process. So the Department of Energy, I think a couple of major aerospace companies, the Department of Defense are all taking a strong interest in this technology. And, you know, if you accept the conspiracy theory that we've already discovered all this stuff years ago and we're just trying to find a way of farming it out through private industry, Maybe that's what's happening, but I sincerely hope it is because we could be on the cusp of a major breakthrough. Because if you look at the assertions that have been made by the U.S. Navy's uh, James Sheehy, who's a commander in one of the Navy's research labs in Washington, D.C., he vouched for the veracity of claims made in a Tinder application by Dr. Salvatore Pay. P-A-I-S. And these extraordinary patents are applied for in the US Patent Office. And I go into them in detail in my book, where Dr. Pay is asserting that he's developed a room temperature superconductor, a force field generator, a transmedium vehicle. I mean, what he's essentially describing fundamentally is antigravitics. Um, He's also describing a contained fusion reactor. And in some of these patents, Commander Sheehy, his commanding officer, has written letters in support of the patent application, asserting the veracity of their operability. Now, in a past life, I used to be a lawyer. And so I know that when you make a patent application, if you make a fraudulent statement in a patent application, it's invalidated. So if it can be demonstrated that you've made an assertion that is untrue at a patent application, then it completely fails and it's useless. So why the hell is the US Navy making assertions within a few years of the TIC-TAC sighting in 2004 that it has developed technology that, by all accounts, appears to be anti-gravitic technology and appears to be generating extraordinary amounts of energy far beyond known technologies that we have on this planet at the moment? And all I'm doing is asking what the hell's going on? Why aren't the media asking questions about this?
0: Now you're talking about anti-gravity technology and a a huge fan of your book is one, Mr. Luis Elizondo, who I'm sure you, you know well. Um, I asked you an email previously, uh, for some from new information that potentially might be coming up and you said to me Ross and I'll quote ask me about the evidence that the US is tracking UAP craft using electromagnetic signatures and I would potentially link this to Luella Elizondo himself teasing there is a very simple way to detect these objects would that be correct I think he's right uh,
1: I've spoken to boffins who've told me that the US knew the frequencies that allowed them to track detect And anticipate these objects way back 30, 40 years ago. They've known about this and they've been tracking them with aircraft. And I've spoken to people, uh, Bob Fish is one guy I name in my book, who's a former very, very uh, highly cleared, top secret, SCI cleared uh, communications expert who was working in the offices of a major defense contractor. And he was briefed about Uh, an incident where uh, uh, I think the first time it happened was in 1957. And it's actually, there's a paper I've discovered that actually talks about this, where the frequencies for the object and its movement are described and tracked by this craft, by the US Air Force craft. And then I've spoken more recently to people who've told me, I mean, Bob told me that he was aware of allegations that, Uh, from a guy who was um, on a a surveillance aircraft that was doing routine communications monitoring off Cuba during the Cold War, Uh, that guy briefed him about how the plane that he was in was diverted to uh, a location off Florida, that's all he'd tell me, where UAPs were detected coming in and out of the water. That is craft coming in and out of the water transmedium vehicles, UFOs. and As a result of me talking about that in other podcasts, I've had a, an array of scientists, technicians, military, multiple sources have contacted me telling me, not only has the US done this, it's continuing to do it, and we're doing it in space now. We're also monitoring these objects in space. The allegation has been put to me by a source that I hugely respect but won't name that the United States is exploring the possibility and may indeed have already attempted to do so of using these frequencies to bring down these objects. So essentially an offensive strategy against one of these objects to deploy the electromagnetic frequencies of this object against it to try and bring it down. I sure as hell hope that's not happening. Because the concern that was expressed to me was the risks involved in doing that. Multiple sources have told me that they're aware of an active operation right now, just off the Virginia coast of the United States of America, where since 2014, 2015, US Navy pilots have on a almost daily basis been seeing anomalous objects and filming them right next to their craft. And I'm told, and indeed Elizondo went on the record with me on this, some of these videos are extraordinary. They're incredibly clear, but they haven't been released to the public. Why? If the US is genuine when it asserts that this is a mystery, if it really is the truth, as the UAP task force report to Congress asserts, if it really is the truth that the US has just discovered this phenomenon that, oh my God, these UFOs, oh hell, they're real. If that really is the case, then why the hell haven't they released everything they know? Because a lot of what I've been told by sources in government, in military, in defense aerospace is mind-blowing. And I reckon the public's got a right to know about it. And I've invited officials who've told me about it on the record, off the record, I've said to them, look, is there any good national security reason that you can think of as to why the public shouldn't at least be allowed to see these videos? Because frankly, I think, I mean, I haven't seen these videos. I've had them described to me. From what I've heard, if they were released, it would be game over.
0: and quite steampunk like Alice
1: was playing bass for the Parliament of Linifold. the little fucker right outside of my window and when I shut out the screen he made it an issue I don't think he expected me to see his ass but I'd had some champagne and smoked a for with the Lucky Land Sluts you can get lucky just about anywhere